Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Hey guys, it's Natalie and I'm joined by... Hello art people, I'm Sam, the (laughs) intern. And we're here to tell you about an exciting upcoming event that we're going to be attending in Los Angeles. We're back at the LA Art Show this year. It's the LA Art Show! Yay! (laughs) So stoked. So Corey and I will be podcasting and recording live at... The LA Art Show on February 7th and 8th. It's a Friday and a Saturday. Friday and Saturday. Get your weekend on, friends. Come see us. <laughs> At 6 p.m. And it, we had a really good time doing it last year. We talked to some very cool people. So I think it'll be another really great experience. We had a really good time last year, and you're going to have a really good time this year if you come. Yeah. So if you're in the LA area that weekend, please come visit us. The show is open actually from thursday through sunday but if you buy a ticket you can come visit see a lot of great art uh there are a lot of galleries that come to this and if you're looking to buy art you can do that which is always great listen what natalie's trying to say is if you don't come to this art show you're gonna regret (laughs) it for the rest of your life so you might you might you will it's that good yeah so come visit us come uh, meet us we really like to get to meet you guys at these events and yeah. We thrive off of you guys. So come hang out, have a great time, and let's, let's do art stuff together. All cool. right. Thanks, guys. Enjoy the episode. Love ya. Welcome to the podcast. My name is Natalie, and this is the Art History Babes. It's so weird doing that by myself, first of all, because I never really do the introduction, and second, because... I need the other voices to cue me. But I am joined here today by a very special guest. I'm going to let you introduce yourself and maybe tell everyone a bit about who you are. My name is David Sutherland. I'm an artist based in Los Angeles, California. I'm not really sure what else to say beyond that. I guess any I guess questions. <laughs> Whatever happens after that. That's a good start. It's a general overview, you know, I guess um, abstract expressionist reminiscent work is what some people describe. Yeah. Me as, I mean. Do you prefer that label or do you kind (laughs) of resist it? I think you, in general, it kind of resists labels at first and references because it makes you feel not unique but then you I mean over time I think as you get older as an artist you start to you know appreciate more so those things and the fact that you are drawing from all of these people and the the influences basically drives everything you do so the more you embrace that I feel like the more the more articulate you can be with your output of work so now I kind of embrace it and I've gotten to know a lot of those works a lot more and those artists, so I very much appreciate any reference to any of them, actually. That's cool. I mean, as an art historian, I like hearing that you feel like more connected to your practice by looking back, because that's definitely a lot of like what we do with trying to look back at history through the lens of art is like, yeah, drawing connections and just believing in the idea that there's something kind of intrinsically valuable in what has come before us and that by looking at it, we can kind of just enhance our current experience or understand it better, however you want to look at it. Yeah, because I mean, I feel like a lot of people try to like isolate themselves like in modern context and put themselves on a sort of pedestal and say that they don't pay attention to what goes on or what has happened and whatever comes out of their work is just some some form of pure you know catharsis that but it's all i don't know it's all very narcissistic and ego driven i feel but i could be wrong maybe some people are just inherently geniuses that you know rediscover 
art every time they make something. Yeah, but. well, they can have fun with their practice, but I'm with you. I think the rest of us are living in a world where we're all very influenced by things around us, you know, to varying degrees. And I don't think we should find any shame in that. I'm surprised there's not more art historians that are curators. I think, <laughs> which, I which, think there uh, are a lot. I, Do you feel like you don't meet a lot that are yeah. overlapped? Well, I mean, in museums, yeah. Um, mm-hmm. I feel like in galleries, like at least in contemporary galleries, you don't really catch a lot of them. And it's, yeah. What do you feel like the uh, backgrounds that, are uh, more often? No, you're definitely more experienced in this than me. So I'm just really curious because, yeah, I obviously see it from like being in art history, academia, curator is a role. It's it's honestly what I thought I wanted to be when I was younger and what you're describing sounds more like how I would have seen myself as a curator when I was younger and imagining things. But then when I got into art history school and kind of saw how that would realistically play out as an art historian, I was not very interested anymore. (laughs) And that's why I kind of pivoted. (laughs) So um, yeah, do you know people's backgrounds a lot of times from curation? Is it art or? I mean, I, I think quite a few of them have maybe undergrad degrees in some sort of fine art situation. But I mean, again, I could be wrong because I don't ask every single one of them. But I, f- I feel like at least from what I like see on quote unquote scene is a lot of, I mean, sort of nepotistic relationship driven things, I okay. guess, if that makes sense. And it's kind of just, you know, they knew this person who knew that person and blah, blah, blah. And I don't know. I just a lot of times I feel like I'll I'll start talking to them about art or try to talk to them about art history, and there's not really like a comprehensive understanding of a lot of works. Like they might know this or that about a few people, but I feel like as an artist, I mean, it is definitely my obligation to have a certain degree of knowledge of art history, definitely. But I, I think as a curator, a gallerist, or even an, just an art dealer—I mean, not just an art dealer, but art dealer. Mm-hmm. I feel like you should have a very thorough understanding of pretty much everything. <laughs> yeah, that's the kind of the way that we were taught in school. And while, you know, there is the part of me that definitely likes the pushback against all of that formal ideology. Yeah, I, I'm with you where I think it enhances it. I'm not trying to be like elitist about it or like, you you know, you need yeah. to have this degree and have gone to whatever no it's not not about that but just being curious and interested in a history that really directly affects what you're doing yeah seems kind of natural even just like a willingness to know you know (laughs) like yeah do you feel like people get defensive if you try and engage and they don't really know how to talk back i think it's slightly that like they try to shift the conversation but it's it's more so they couldn't be bothered to learn anything more. Like if you reference an artist and you tell them a little bit about them, it's not like they'll go home and research whoever that artist is. Or because I mean, like a lot of my works, I I reference color palettes and compositions and things, and I'll tell someone about it, and I can tell. I, like when you're talking to someone, you can tell what's going in one ear and out the other, kind of thing. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I guess that's that's sort of just where it becomes a bit frustrating but no that's like a really I don't know fair way to assess that like yeah you can tell when you're speaking to someone and they're following they're following following and then suddenly you lose them or yeah they just don't really understand anymore and so yeah I would imagine you would get kind of like a very candid view at people's kind of like limitations or yeah disinterest around certain things like kind of with some of your podcasts uh I mean, I'd seen some of Anselm Kiefer's work in person, but I hadn't really looked into it. And then I was listening to your episode on him. And then at some point, like in the first 15 minutes or something, 20 minutes, all of you were talking about just go watch these documentaries (laughs) and then come back. And then so I watched the documentaries. I did a bunch of reading and I went and looked at a bunch more of his work. And then, I mean, I actually forgot to go back and listen to the actual podcast, but actually just like, I I mean, when you hear something or you see something that's visually interesting, if you if you're in the art world, there should be a natural inclination to want to explore something further and find out as much as about it as you can. I guess, but I don't know. That kind of ends that. Yeah, <laughs> you don't have to go any further. Well, no, I totally feel you really hit the nail on the head with 
the idea sorry I just spilled wine on myself that's why I'm like pausing (laughs) (laughs) real life moment here but uh, you were saying that oh gosh lost my train of thought man yeah I'm all over the place here no 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 I was like really into it and and then I like jumped out of excitement (laughs) and sloshed wine on myself (laughs) it's a personal problem (laughs) no oh that I was just gonna say that's a great way to know you're kind of like on the right track with anything in your life is like sparking that natural curiosity and tapping into whatever that is that you hear something and it gets you so excited that you have to like pause and go look elsewhere and like keep expanding like that's how I know when I'm really interested in something and I think anyone not just artists could benefit from like really paying attention to what makes them do that and then try and you know follow those avenues yeah I mean yeah definitely agree I mean you said it perfectly so I don't know if there's much more for me to elaborate on there well I can kind of segue though into a question I had which was (laughs) have you always known you wanted to be an artist or if not what was your kind of path to finding your way into being a professional artist I've always had creative outlets since I was a kid. I remember well, my grandfather taught me to draw, and I think I was five when he first started teaching me, maybe four. Mm-hmm. But he was an aerospace engineer, so he was very good at, at sketching and things like that. And then I got into music a lot as a kid. I, I mean, I've kind of been all over the creative fields, but it didn't really seem like it was a a viable path for a career especially because I, I mean I grew up in north Detroit and that's just kind of not something people do mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> so I joined the Coast Guard so I was in the Coast Guard for a while and then after I got out of the Coast Guard I was using my GI Bill to go to school and then I did a show it was I mean it wasn't a show of any significance but it was just of some work that I'd made and it basically just open the world of possibility of that actually being a, a career path that I could take. And then I just kept pursuing it blindly until I started figuring things out, I guess. Nice. I still haven't figured it out, but <laughs> I think I'm on my way. I was going to say, I think you're figuring it out, definitely. So when did you move to L.A.? Um, I moved to L.A. in 2010. So that's 10 years ago, January, so in- January 25th. Was that like pre-Coast Guard or? No, that was after the Coast Guard. Got it. Got it. Got it. Yeah. Yeah. And do you feel like that was a choice that you made for your career or just one that kind of naturally happened or what made you choose LA? Well, I was going to school in Santa Barbara, actually. And I met a friend who later became, I mean, a patron, I guess, of sorts, and he was living in Los Angeles and visiting Santa Barbara, and he commissioned me to do a bunch of works for him. Mm-hmm. So I would come back and forth to L.A. from Santa Barbara while I was in school all the time. And then I ended up just moving down here because driving between Santa Barbara and Los Angeles three times a week just didn't really make sense. Yeah, that seems like a bitch of a drive. Okay, that's very cool. So were you going to UCSB? No, I was just going to the city college because you have to yeah, you have to get your prereqs done before you can transfer kind of thing. No, I knew quite a few people who went there. I was just asking because UC Santa Barbara was like my dream school when I was a wee wee child, oh, yeah. which I definitely grew out of when I learned how I'm not the most devoted student. <laughs> yeah, well, I actually only ended up there because my sister was doing her uh, PhD there in environmental oh, economics. Nice. So I was I mean, I didn't really have anywhere else to go when I got out of the Coast Guard. I was living in Houston at the time, so I just kind of packed all my bags, threw them in my car, and drove out to California. I mean, it's kind of like serendipitous, though, that that's where you ended up, because I feel like L.A. is a very, I don't know, the art scene in L.A. is growing and expanding, or has been, it feels like, for the last decade at least, and especially with like the yeah, the colors and like the aesthetic of your work, I feel like it is very fitting. Yeah, no, LA is great. It has a very large, large art scene now. It didn't always feel that way, I don't think. But I mean, you're right. It's been like over the past decade, it's been slowly growing. I think as the city itself is kind of growing and coming into its own, I guess. 
in a way. And I feel like it's almost like a world hub now, as opposed to where it used to just be a satellite community of artists. Mm -hmm. And yeah, when I first moved here, it was mostly the, the stuff that was like proliferating in the art world was, I would be more like street art world stuff. So that kind of thing. And I, because I didn't have an MFA or whatever, that was kind of the world that I got thrown into initially anyway even though I don't really think you would consider my work street art. Yeah, yeah but they accepted you. <laughs> yeah, no, they were very kind, welcoming, and I got to do some shows with some really amazing people. And yeah, it was a great kind of intro and segue into things. Yeah, I could see that, though, because, yeah, your art wouldn't be defined as street art by any means, but it also visually, like, complements street art. Like, it doesn't clash in any way with it. So I could see that working together. Yeah. <laughs> because, well, I mean, like, and then, you know, as some, it's it's weird because like, a lot of this work developed organically as I sort of learned more and more about art as I was painting and more about art history and things and just developing based on like a prior conversation of things. Mm -hmm. And uh, when I started making this work that was more defined and more characteristic of, I guess, my own voice, I wasn't exactly the most capable of, of articulating the, like whatever it was, and developing a thesis for it, I suppose. Mm -hmm. So then you sort of get pigeonholed into this aesthetic-driven art kind of thing, okay. if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Keep going. I don't know. <laughs> I, I, I should be more <laughs> positive in, the, in this conversation, but it's so easy to kind of you know just go off in the direction of you know talk, talking about the negative aspects of things but there's so many great things about it. i was gonna say we've got room for both we can, we can cover it all yeah <laughs> okay but yeah so now i'm just kind of trying to still find my place in the world of things here but uh, yeah i think it's growing in a way that's heading in the right direction yeah well and i mean that would put you at like 10 years of actual, I'm sure your art practice is a lot older than 10 years. We talked about you being creative for pretty much your whole life, but moving to LA and kind of starting that has been like a decade. That's, I don't know. I feel like 10 years is a good amount of time to learn a lot about yourself and change and kind of evolve. And that seems really natural. Yeah, you, I think you just get a little anxious when you start to be more involved in the world of things and you see other people or like you see people you know having more success and things like mm -hmm. that. But then you have to remember that like a lot of the people that you know are old, much older. And I mean, developing a career too young also isn't very healthy because then, I mean, there's also the market and business aspect of art where people develop markets for work and things like that. And they, you know, they kind of just blow people up. Yeah. And then you never hear from them again. They get signed right out of art school to some big gallery. They, you know, fall under the pressure of that whole circumstance. And then they forget why they were ever making art to begin with. Yeah, it's so true. No, I've heard about that happening and being like a real problem that people face nowadays. And like, you hear about it in other disciplines or careers, but my mind growing up in the house that I did go straight to like professional athletes but it's not something that I feel like was talked about in the art world before recently and it's something that should probably be talked about a lot because young artists should be aware and like learn how to be their own advocate and defend themselves in those situations and hopefully not fall into that situation as much yeah yeah especially with a lot of like the emerging galleries they pull straight from i mean it seems like they pull a lot straight from mfa programs you know cal arts and i mean which is good you know like as i mean like you go to school you yeah. want opportunity when you come out or like they, you know and they have like the yellow mfa programs which those people are guaranteed pretty much shows the second they come out and all that kind of stuff and you know, it's, I don't know, it seems like a lot of instantaneous pressure and a lot of, I guess, it's very mechanized, which seems strange to me. But Yeah. Because you want to think of the art world as like this big romantic place where people are discovered out of nowhere and all that kind of stuff, you know. And everybody wants to hear some beautiful romantic story, but 
yeah. <laughs> when you actually get down to it and look into it, you're like, oh, okay, that's how that happened. Oh, okay, yeah. that's how it's this person got It's still there. operating oh. within capitalism. It's still like hinging on kind of like a, a yeah. business mindset. And so people really do tap into that. Which I mean, you know, and a lot of people... I mean, I mean, obviously, a lot of people love Jeff Koons, but I feel like you, in the art world, you hear a lot of people like hate on him for his his practice of you know his business mind, having other people make things for him. But I mean, the way he's gone about it is really genius, mm-hmm. and I don't know, it's kind of. What yeah. are your feelings on Koons? <laughs> Not to I mean, put you on the his spot. His work isn't personally for me. <laughs> I mean, a lot of, I mean, like, I've seen some things, some pieces of his that I really enjoy. I mean, in general, his work isn't, you know, my preferred, my preferred to look at, but I, I, I can appreciate it for its quality. I can appreciate it for its, I hate to use the word articulation again, but articulation of his vision of whatever it was. He's perfected it, which is something to be admired, I think. Yeah. But it's not my personal preference, I mean, yeah i i mean you said it very nicely i've said it less nicely i think but yeah i personally am not a huge coons fan but it's not his you know business mindedness or his workshop or any of that that bothers me about him i actually i wrote a paper about him and his workshop in undergrad and not in like an overly critical way but yeah he more just gives me like the creeps like I don't know there's something about him that just gives me like like I would not want to be left alone in a room with Jeff Coons is just the vibe that I get from him really he seems pretty harmless to me honestly (laughs) Uh, maybe but there's just something that makes me really like uneasy about him I don't know yeah. <laughs> I'm being really judgy because I don't have a really great example of why I feel this way. It's just it's a feeling. Yeah. But I <laughs> I think it might be slightly unique in that regard. And I mean as as to why you don't like him being creepiness, but <laughs> I, I think a lot of people tend to like gravitate towards his like the way he, he goes about his practice. And I feel like I feel like people criticize his practice, but there's so many artists out there that make work exactly the same way he does, but they like portray themselves as these like vagabond, you know, whatever it is, but then they have like 50,000 square foot compounds where they have 30 people working for them, making their work, but then they go out in some, you know, some weird trendy fashion outfit and pretend like they're not what Jeff Koons is when they should really just be wearing the suit and owning it. No, it's true. That's a good way to put it. And I think you kind of were touching on it earlier when you were kind of talking about the idea of like the artist as a genius and kind of like this, this being that just creativity and enlightenment runs through their veins and they're, you know, sharing it with the rest of us plebs. But like there is kind of a dichotomy, it feels like, between people wanting to see artists as that and then other people maybe realizing that. I don't know. I'm, maybe I'm like trying to mix too many ideas here, but that art does have like a long history and lineage and that kind of everything that's being created now to some degree came from what was created before and then also like art takes collaboration and certain certain works of art and styles of art making require a lot of people and a team to act like that's not a reality why like i don't know i now i'm just rambling but no, it's okay. I just, I just hope, I just hope that our conversation isn't too wandering to the point where you know nobody wants to listen to it. But oh, yeah. people know what they're getting into now. <laughs> yeah, but it's all, that's also another problem. Is like the, I mean, not a problem, but I mean, when you make work on a certain scale, it tends to require a lot of people helping you as or having studio assistants and that, and you just hear about all of these big artists in Los Angeles that have all these places and they have these people working for them, but they treat these like kids like trash and then don't even consider their, they don't, you, know, you just hear a lot of stuff like that. And, you know, but a lot of that could just be bitterness of these, you know, kids out of art school working for these big famous artists and not feeling like, oh, whatever. I don't know. Who knows? You hear a lot of things. People talk a lot. It could all just be, you know, it's hard to know like i'm sure it's a mix of 
people actually being treated badly and then people also maybe being a little bit in their ego and just not happy with where they're at personally. Yeah. And it's probably just like a range between there. But I believe that it happens where big name artists don't feel like they need to treat the people working with them <laughs> with the most respect. I don't agree with it, but I, I believe <laughs> it happens. Yeah, I'm sure. And I mean, I don't know. I'm pretty, I'm sure I'm guilty of just, you know, ego driven talk. Cause like, I don't know, sometimes I'll like go to a show and I'll find myself just talking shit to a friend about whatever it was. And then I'm like, why am I saying this? What, 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 what's the point of me critiquing this in this way? This person went through the trouble of making this and blah, blah, blah. You know, it contributes nothing to the positives to the conversation. So I just goes back to if you don't have anything nice to say, don't say anything at all, I guess. I appreciate that and like yeah it criticism and just critique in general is built into the model of the art world and art viewing and in school they teach it to you it's I don't know it's hard so I definitely have the tendency to do it I think we all do but I like the way that you put that that like it's not contributing anything really constructive back so what good is it really doing I think we've fooled ourselves into believing that the job of the critic is maybe a little bit more important than it is or maybe we're just kind of shifting into a place as a collective consciousness where it's not as necessary because I agree with you like criticism just for the sake of criticism seems to come really naturally to all of us and (laughs) I like that you question it when it happens Yeah. yeah well I also find myself criticizing people for ridiculous reasons when i go to shows like when i (laughs) like i'll go to a show and i'll look at paintings and i'll look at how the canvas is built and like and i'll look at you know how the paintings apply or what they're doing and it's like almost like if i see a store-bought canvas i'll almost get upset i'm just like how can you be an artist if you don't make your own canvases like Mm -hmm. it's crazy to me but (laughs) that kind of thing or like i don't know there's all sorts of weird little standards i have for my own personal critique of art or at least things that are being made currently i mean it probably has a lot to do with what you were told and what you tell yourself like that you're allowed to do within your practice you know yeah yeah. like the self-mirroring thing yeah this is turning into (laughs) a therapy session for me i guess (laughs) uh sorry welcome to our podcast this is what we do perfect (laughs) so just going back to your art and your process of making how would you describe your process like clearly you make your own canvases respect (laughs) (laughs) but um what else like i mean i think a lot of people would be interested in kind of just like a nerdy technical talk really quickly about how you paint Okay, so I'm sort of in a state of transition currently at the moment, but the stuff that is, I guess, most relevant to what is visible to the world are these pore paintings that I do. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, they're all based on these figurative compositions. And then, I'm well, originally I would draw the composition a lot on the canvas because it would help me figure out where the paint needed to go in layers. And then I would go in and do the pores, and then you move the canvas around to shift the paint and basically you come out with this very abstracted version of the original rendering of whatever it was that I was trying to make. Oh, that's really cool. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, I enjoy the process and it allows you to, I mean, it allows me or I mean, I guess whoever wants to try it, you know, you kind of just let yourself go at a certain point in the process while you're making it because the fluidity of the paint and because it's working with like an acrylic resin based paint, you only have, well, at least from what I'm working with them, it's you only have an hour to let the paint settle in place before it starts mm-hmm. to seal up on the top. And then if you start moving it around, it's sort of like it, it, it paint will tear, you'll get bleeding, and blah, 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 blah. Mm-hmm. And there's a whole, you know, thing about the type of paint I use and all of that to make sure that the colors aren't bleeding into each other and the drying times are right and all of that. It's a lot more complicated than just throwing paint on a canvas. <laughs> but um Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Sometimes when I talk about it I lose my train of thought because I'm just going over the process. But no. 
uh, no, you're doing anything good. in there um, you have a question about. I don't know about clarify. No, I just to respond, I it's a really interesting mix of control and kind of like chance aesthetics that you're working with. And it almost sounds like you when you're describing like kind of like moving and getting lost in it, like I could visually see how that could almost be like like mesmerizing in a way to kind of watch the paint start to move on its own. Oh, if that's if I'm visualizing this correctly. Yeah, it very much is. And when you're pouring the paint, so I'm doing it, there's probably 10 different, maybe 12 pours that happen in the course of the paintings that, I mean, at least the ones that you'll see if you Google me on the internet. Mm-hmm. We'll post some too. Yeah, so those ones. So basically... I mean, I'm not. I haven't stopped making them, but I'm kind of pausing on them because I've made them for. I feel like I got it. You know, I don't know if that makes sense, but I've been doing them for a few years yeah. now, so I'm kind of yeah, yeah. playing in other worlds now, and I've switched over to doing some oil work and stuff like that. But what I've realized in retrospect, having like some space and distance from it when I'm looking at the paintings, is one of the things I think that makes them so that draws you in aesthetically is that every piece of movement every shape within the context of the composition moves in line with another part of the composition because all the fluids moving at once, if that makes sense. It's just, yeah. No, totally. The angles kind of like run parallel in a way. Yeah. So even if you have like an individual, so like in a lot of the works, there's like the figure is either black or red within the context of it, but, but the figure is moving I mean, I call them figures, but with the, it's moving with the, with the mm-hmm. background or with the foreground, it's, it's all in sync with each other, I guess, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, it totally does. And you see that in your work, but like hearing how you do it just enhances it. Hearing you describe your process, it's a really important part of your work, it sounds like, to understanding it. I think this happens a lot with abstract art where like you need to invest a little bit more than just looking at it to really understand what's going on or the context and maybe that is part of why you're one of us who like really believe in um, researching and knowing your stuff and putting in that time because it is kind of a really important aspect of your artwork and it just feels like people who aren't interested in doing that as a whole like in general aren't going to connect with your work on the same way that people who are interested in that are if that made sense yeah no no, that makes perfect sense (laughs) because i mean like i've sort of developed this weird internet following because there's been a bunch of blogs or instagram art blogs that have like reposted my work over and over blah blah but like i see sometimes i do the terrible thing of reading the comments and I'll, I'll get a lot of I'll get I'll get a lot of critiques, oh, and people are like, "He's just a knockoff Clifford Still," and blah blah blah. And I'm just like, when's the last time you actually slightly looked into Clifford Still's work? He made his work with palette knives and oil paints, and it's a completely different process. That his shapes are mm-hmm. jagged, and are I guess like the only thing you really compare yeah. is like the reductionist figures, I guess. But that's in Rothko's work. That's in still work i was gonna say then take your pick of other artists yeah Yeah, it's it's such a sad way to look at art and yeah i just kind of feel sorry for those people yeah i have a a hard time on like dealing with the internet sometimes but you kind of have to do it in in order to make a living off of your work yeah i remember there was like there was this time someone commented on one of the paintings and they were like you just stole this style from this person. And then and then I was like, okay, well, people say that stuff all the time. But then the artist, whoever they were referencing, came back and commented and said, thank you so much. And I was just like, I've never even heard of them before. And then I looked at their page and then you know, I was like, I almost felt insulted because I was like, okay, this person pours paint on a canvas, but whatever, it doesn't look at all similar to me. Like I, I get no feeling out of their work that I, there's no resonance for me. I, got upset and I called the person a charlatan for thinking it was the first time that anybody had ever poured paint on a canvas and then the wrath of the internet fell down upon me <laughs> but oh god well good for you for trying to take them on though because you're so right even in doing this I told you we just finished writing the bulk of our book that's hopefully coming out next year but 
it's basically like an arts dictionary. Oh, yeah, that's really exciting. And so we're just, thank you, going over different art and art historical terms that we think are important or relevant. And then we describe it in our own words. And one of the terms that I did, so I did acrylic paint. So I kind of did like a little brief history of acrylic and synthetic paint and when it started being used by artists. And um, David Alfaro Siqueiros, do you, are you familiar at all? I, the Mexican um, muralist yeah, painter? Yeah, I love his work. Actually, sidetrack. So when I was in Santa Barbara at school, yeah. one of the things that got me to do my first show was I was taking these Chicano art history course, mm-hmm. and we were studying the Mexican murals, and I became obsessed with them, and I was I really loved their work. It's, I, don't, I mean, my work doesn't look anything like theirs now, but I, I was a huge fan. But I mean, ever since you started, and I had a feeling that your practice involved pouring paint, so even before I spoke with you, I his name was kind of swirling around in my head because he um, was like the pioneer in working with acrylic and with pouring paints and developed his style of painting. Because he did that workshop with all those abstract expressionist guys in New York. Exactly. In the, was it the 30s or something? Like 40s? Mm-hmm. Late 30s, or I think so... Th- I want to say, yeah, like 35 was when he started. I need to just like pull up my uh, notes from that entry. Okay, so yeah, it was called accidental painting was the style that he created by pouring paints. He was really more interested in pouring one color and then pouring a lighter color and like the difference in densities and how that would make paint react, if that makes sense. I don't know enough about science yeah, to talk about this. Yeah, there's a whole big paper on it. Yeah, so you might actually be a little bit more versed yeah. in this than I am. But yeah, and Jackson Pollock came to one of his workshops. So I like to kind of allude to like, you know, Siqueiros probably had a hand in Jackson Pollock's style that he developed and really became the poster boy for, which I just love that little tidbit. Yeah, when I found that out, I was very excited because... <laughs> Well, and then then you can draw that back even further and all those guys going to, I think it was Paris, Mm -hmm. and they were doing, they were studying under the Cubists before they were doing the murals. Because, yeah, it it just kind of reinforces the idea that every, you know, everything that's being made is an extension of the conversation of whatever was made before it. Totally. In my head, at least. No, I think you're right. And we're doing a disservice to ourselves as a society, as a whole, by writing out the details, like, Jackson Pollock would have been heavily influenced by David Sikiros and like it's that idea of trying to perpetuate the artist as a genius and as you know this one person who was gifted with these skills like it doesn't work that's not how anything happens (laughs) nothing's created in a vacuum and if we if we speak about it in history like it's that way then it's just muddying the story and making it harder for people working now because it's never the case that one person was like behind every idea yeah i mean maybe carvaggio but (laughs) (laughs) just him though we'll make the exception just for him yeah Oh, yeah, I was I was very excited when I found out he was one of your favorites. I was like, I love his work. I saw an exhibit. It was years ago that they did it Lacma with his work, but it was funny because when I went to what well, Lacma's Los mm-hmm. Angeles County Museum of Art or something, um, but I was walking around the exhibit. It was it was like you could tell when you were looking at a Carvaggio as opposed to his contemporaries. It was just like. It, because I, w- I was going through, I was like, oh, I don't like this one as much. And then I would go look at the placard and it would be one of his contemporaries. Mm-hmm. And it was just, there was something, there was something magical about that guy. <laughs> it all really was. Crazy, violent psychosis, you know? Exactly. I mean, I like, he's definitely a top of my problematic faves. And like, I get it. He kind of seemed like a dick, but like, there's something about him that just really speaks to me. And yeah, have you listened to the Bad Boys of the Baroque yet? Have you gone all the way back? Yeah, like, yeah. No, yeah. That, that, that's where I started. Because when okay. I started listening to your your podcast, I was my sister just had a baby and she was moving across the country. So I basically mm-hmm. was driving a car from Utah to North Carolina. I was like, I need a podcast about art. I need to hear. I need. <laughs> I need to be more informed. When I found yours, and I basically listened to i think it was 20 episodes or something in a row <laughs> Dang. i just binge i just binge listening to all of them and then at some point i realized like i couldn't like differentiate between who 
like I didn't know who was who when you guys were talking. If that makes any sense. No, that totally makes sense. And our audio quality was much rougher back then, so we probably all just sounded a little grainier and more similar. (laughs) And sometimes you guys would get like a a little too drunk, and I would just be like, "Well, I'm just gonna go to the next one." next episode <laughs> smart i mean no offense you, know, you probably just skipped through the whole bacchanal episode oh no that, that episode was amazing actually <laughs> the only time we get upset is when people leave us reviews that are like really negative and being like oh they, i just can't get past like the giggling or like when they get off topic and it's like read our bio like <laughs> that's us if you don't like it you don't have to listen but you can't get mad at us for being what we're advertising yeah no i mean exactly <laughs> yeah that's the only time when we're like get out of here i mean the title of the podcast is art history babes like you should be clued in somewhat to what you're getting by that you know exactly that we're not going to be taking ourselves entirely seriously so getting back to your work oh no what were you gonna say oh saying i'm sorry i sidetracked you no 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 you're good um please all the tangents are welcome here But getting back to your art making, so you had kind of talked about feeling like you've got it with this whole pouring style and what you've been doing. And so now you're kind of moving on. And it kind of leads into a question I had about like individual works. How do you know when you're done with a painting? I think for some people, especially when it comes to abstract paintings, they have a lot of questions around like what finished means and I was just wondering if you have like a specific process or moment when you know something's finished yeah well with the poor paintings it's very much well there's time constraint and then there's there's this visual thing that happens when I'm painting at least with the purely abstracted pieces when I just see a balance in it Mm -hmm. and I know that if I go any further I'll throw it out of balance to a point where everything else in the painting will have to be rebalanced. Does that make sense? Yeah. Because, yeah, even with these newer like oil paintings that I'm doing, it's, I mean, I'll look at like an 8 by 10 canvas, and the whole thing will be painted, and then I'll see one spot where I think this mark needs to be, and then I'll go put that mark in, and then 20 others will appear. <laughs> I, don't know. It, mm-hmm. I don't know if that makes visually, it's hard to say it. I don't say what it is that as a, as a visual person I think you're doing a good job describing it if that helps yeah. at all I'm like following along in my head with the visual. it's hard to say what it is I see I just like my eyes will then be drawn to another part and then it's almost like you're doing this visual equation or some sort of there's some sort of arithmetic or I mean that's mm-hmm. why I, I think one day, one day computers will be better painters than humans because there's there's got to be some algorithm running in my brain that just makes <laughs> you know be like done yeah all no the, i mean all that's... zeros and ones are in place <laughs> we have an entry in our book on ai art so we we've been thinking about that too but also i don't know the part of me that's very skeptical of artificial intelligence says like but could we recreate that part of your brain that knows or is it just instinct you know who knows <laughs> i i mean i <laughs> yeah <laughs> I, I guess i i don't, I don't really i don't know I, I, it, it, I feel like you're a little bit too modest to like accept the idea that it's like something intrinsic in you is that what i'm sensing well it's either, it's either that or i just i just don't i don't think that much of humanity <laughs> <laughs> as, I mean, Fair. as an as an evolved species you know i mean we're just a slightly elevated in our thought process beyond you know an ape so i feel like whatever's going on inside of our brains i mean i think it's beautiful and it's like a miracle of billions of years of evolution and creation or whatever spiritual guidance you want to you know impose upon it but i think whatever's to come is going to make us seem just as irrelevant as you know an ape and eventually (laughs) i think eventually i mean i I think that's sort of an optimistic outlook because I feel I feel like whatever whatever it is that future evolved intelligence is able to create is going to be infinitely more beautiful thing than we can make right now. I, I think whatever we're making is going to have relevance to them the same way that a Caravaggio painting has relevance to us, you know. But I 
I, I think it's just going to be different, I guess. I don't know if it's going to be, I guess, yeah. better is degrading the value of now. No. <laughs> I was going to say, I mean, I agree with you, except with the idea that in the future, things are always going to be better and that it's always going to keep improving. I feel like there's there's a chance that we might we might have plateaued or uh, started to like turn the ship around in that regard. Yeah. Now we're getting into Everything my cynicism. <laughs> okay. I know people who say don't be cynical or they're just repressing whatever cynicism they have, you know. So to not express it is, I don't know, I don't know what that is, but <laughs> there's definitely part of me that thinks the world's going to end tomorrow. You know, I mean, well, some would argue that that helps you live your life a little more fully. So no shame in that. True, true. To each their own, <laughs> however you decide to go about things. Yeah. So I'll just ask you one more little question and then we can wrap things up. But as, you know, someone who's been doing the professional artist thing for a bit and you've, you know, probably learned a few things over the years, what advice would you give to younger artists or people who maybe are young in their arts journey and are just trying to figure out if they maybe want to make the leap into being an artist full-time or what would you tell your younger self I guess (laughs) oh wow (laughs) there's so much and with a real easy question (laughs) there's so much I think just always make whatever you feel is inside of you and that's easier said than done and you'll at times try I think to make your work cater to what you think it should be instead of letting it be what it is but just let it be as terrible as as three word sentence that is but um (laughs) you know and be prepared to be very poor for a very long time that's you know and there, there, yeah, that's a good practical There's reminder. no shame in, in side jobs and all that stuff. It's, you know, just, it's something you decide to do. And at a certain point, you're either going to keep doing it or you're not going to do it anymore. So you just go for it until you feel like you can't do it anymore or you're dead, I guess, you know. There's not really much more to it than that. I think that's good advice. And I feel like that's the kind of thing where, as simple as it is, it's the kind of thing that for people who are living it or thinking about it, it really makes a lot of sense and speaks to them. And to people who aren't in that mindset, it, you know, might just go over their heads. But like, it's true. Like you talked about it at the very beginning. Don't necessarily look around at what other people are doing. Like looking inward is really going to give you all the answers you need yeah because i think as, as, as a younger person especially the future has such a grandiose look to it that you it's intimidating to approach and i think the, the fear of just going for it can cripple some people and i think if you can get past that that's about all it takes yeah and with <laughs> a few side jobs <laughs> it's possible <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Well, I I hope I answered that all right. No, I think that was perfect. It was it was a nice mix of ideological advice and then also like very practical advice. Thanks. <laughs> what advice would you give to future podcasters? Uh, well, someone was just telling me the other day that they heard that there's a three year window to keep starting new podcasts, and then basically it's going to be like so big that that you don't really stand a chance anymore, which is kind of crazy but I guess makes sense in some ways obviously that's not like a hard rule but I would say do it as soon as possible (laughs) and don't wait until you feel like you know what you're doing or you're ready or you're good at it to start or you never will and if you need some encouragement in that department go back and listen to some of our earlier episodes they are sometimes a mess as we've discussed in this one whether it's because we get a little too intoxicated or the audio is just really rough or whatever like you got to just do it and you'll learn as you go perfect oh that was a great answer (laughs) we should end on that note thanks thanks yeah so where where can people find you we'll link your website and stuff but what are your handles where are you most active we know you're on instagram because that's where we met you (laughs) but um 
what else do you want to plug? Just that for now. I mean, but mainly just my website and my Instagram is where you can go to see my work. I'm trying to sort out some gallery stuff, but I don't really know what's going on with that at the moment. So I don't want to preemptively send you somewhere where you might not find me. <laughs> so let's just go with David. No worries. David Sutherland if... on Instagram. It's easy enough. By the way, we haven't even addressed this, but you have a very regal sounding name. Do you get that a lot? <laughs> I do get that a lot. And a lot of people think I'm related to the actor, which is not a thing. Honestly, it's it's a lot less pretentious <laughs> than it sounds because I, I guess we were supposed to end, but it's, it's quick. So when I first started painting, I realized when you Google, this was like ten, almost 10 years ago. I was like, well, if you Google me, David Sutherland, you find this cartoon artist. And if you and then I was like, well, I'll just use my middle name. And then you Google, and then you get the actor. So the only reason I use my full name is quite literally SEO. So you can thank the internet for that. <laughs> uh, that's really funny. Yeah, I don't know. I felt before I met you that I needed to use your full name all the time. And not because I thought you were pretentious. I Which just, I, I don't know. I felt like I had to, but I liked some it. Some people do. <laughs> I've kind of acclimated to it, and it's kind of funny for me to hear it. So I get, I, don't know, I smile a little bit internally whenever someone says that to me. Because a lot of people call me David Donald now, which is weird. But <laughs> And then I kind of um, wanted to shorten it to DDS, but then I was like, no, because then I just think of the dentist, and I can't do that. <laughs> a lot of people do that as well. So, you know, you're, you're not alone there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's it's natural. But no, it's a great name. You should be very proud of it. <laughs> Thank you. All right. Well, thanks for being on the show and talking with me. And I bet everyone's excited to go check out your work. And yeah. Yeah. Thank you for having me. Anytime. All right. Yeah. So it's just like. And if it's wrong, I will check it and I will cut it out and no one will know that we said it. (laughs) (laughs) Perfect. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org.